0: W-233 A.H. Monticello. Hello, 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 and welcome to The Local Edition. News and information to keep you connected, Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host for this Thursday evening, Patricia Robaio. And for those who celebrate, Happy Thanksgiving. We have a special local edition for you tonight. We have another edition of the Reporter's Roundtable. Today I speak with Ruby Rayner from The River Reporter and Roger Hennigan-Gilson from The Times Union. Tonight we'll talk about the rebranding of the Windham Mountain, the failure of the Hudson River cleanup, and issues related to the voting in the recent election here in Sullivan County. So without further ado, here's the latest edition of the Reporter's Roundtable on Radio Catskill. Welcome to this edition of The Reporter's Roundtable. I'm your host, Patricio Robayo. Today, I'm joined with Ruby Rayner from The River Reporter, Roger Hannigan-Gilson from The Times Union. We'll be discussing some of the top stories of the month and delving into what our local reporters are currently investigating. We have a busy agenda, so let's get straight to it. Roger Hannigan-Gilson from The Times Union, I'd like to begin with you. You covered a story on Wyndham Mountain A widely recognized ski resort that's undergoing a rebranding process. Could you share more details on exactly what's happening and how has the rebranding of Wyndham Mountain as Wyndham Mountain Club impacted traditional skiers in the Catskills, according to your article?
1: It's yet to be completely seen just because it's not the ski season. Uh, but there's been, uh, kind of a large reaction from the traditional skiing community in Wyndham. Essentially earlier this year, Wyndham rebranded from Wyndham Mountain to the Wyndham Mountain Club. And it wasn't just an aesthetic rebrand or surface thing. They are selling memberships now. They are $175,000. It's like a lifetime thing. There's also annual dues that are $9,000 and will increase as time goes on. But essentially you get a lot of kind of extras at first from this membership for instance there's going to be a private golf course they're upgrading their current club which was only available to members of the old club they're also building this hudson river outpost which will be on the hudson river as the name suggests and they'll have kayaking and that type of thing so they're expanding their amenities for the members of this new club the amenities haven't really been constructed yet But they've thrown open the door for these $175,000 memberships. They're currently attempting to sell them. The backlash kind of happened before the details were known. Essentially, like on social media, I say the word essentially a lot, I'm just realizing. But on social media, there was a post in which a worker for Wyndham would climb the ladder and was taking down the Wyndham Mountain sign. And it said goodbye to the old Windham Mountain. And then it said something like, introducing the of Mountain Club. So people were like rubbed the wrong way because of the exclusivity of it. And then details started to come out, many of which were in the original article I wrote, that you're not going to be able to get day passes on Saturdays anymore. So you can get a day pass for Friday, you can get a day pass for Sunday. But if you want to ski on Saturday, it needs to be part of a two-day package. You need to get two days. And this frustrated some skiers because they just wanted to, especially if they're local, just pop in for half a day or a day. And that would be impossible under this new structure. Social media was quick to respond. Their, Their Instagram got all these reactionary comments there was a parody site or a parody Instagram account called Windom Idiocy Underscore Mountain. And they were really questioning the direction of Windom. Windom and I talked to a couple people that said that their social media people didn't handle the criticisms very well. They blocked the parody uh, uh, site from commenting on their posts. They also took down a lot of the posts themselves where there was a, a lot of controversial statements below and yeah they attempted to roll it back a bit just because there was such offense expressed at first but more is coming out now and it seems like their concerns aren't unjustified there's going to be i have an article coming out tomorrow about this but it was going to have some more information about exactly what windham mountain club wants to do in the future a couple other key points. They're lowering their cap this year. The amount of skiers that can ski the mountain at once is going from 4,500 to 4,000. That's, if you get a ticket, that's a good thing because there's shorter lines and that kind of thing, but there's concerns that they're just going to continue to cut it down. When you mentioned the price tag, that's the first thing I thought about is that it's going to price out a lot of the locals and I mean, I mean, it's, it's a be- humongous price yeah. tag. You have to be like, I don't know how rich you have to be to course, but it, quite
0: rich. And it seems like it's sort of a trend that's happening now. These Just take it back, like the Sullivan Catskills was like famous for the Borscht Belt. And hmm. it's not the sort of resurgence of these resorts, but they're such high-end numbers. We had here in Sullivan County open up a high-end spa. We got Y01. And it's really, from the get-go, it was not affordable to the locals. It, it was just really high-priced. And, and now, I don't know why, wow, right now it's in limbo. It is actually going to be part of a new village in Thompson. You talked about in your article about lifetime membership for one hundred and seventy five thousand. Like, who has one hundred and seventy five thousand laying around?
1: I have no. I, I do not know any of these people. They must be good people to know, but I don't know them. Yeah, it's exorbitant. And I when you do see this, there. I was talking to somebody who was in the know in the ski industry, and they were talking about just how consolidation was happening, like Wyndham their uh, North Castle partners had owned a large, like still owns a large chunk of them. And then these other business interests got involved. And so it's not consolidating, but one of the things, the term the person we use is they would like kicked them up as in kicked them up to a higher economic class. And that That's been suggested what kind of Wyndham is doing. And yeah, if you see the price tag, $175,000, they clearly are. The question is like whether this is economically feasible because it'll be revealed in the next article, but they're not even attempting to sell a huge amount of these memberships. So what's going to happen to the town of Wyndham? It's reliant on those ski dollars coming in. Yeah, the local people coming in, more people coming in. So they're
0: using restaurants and everything around uh, the area there.
1: Yeah. And it's, yeah, a lot of things are getting kicked up and it's, it's always like amusing to me because, you know, so many, so many things in the Catskills and the Hudson Valley are being like kicked up a notch and like they're not, um, selling, not, they're not trying to, uh, capture like the, the local customer base. And so, yeah, they're capturing the customer base from downstate. But it just occurred to me a couple of days ago, if you lived in Hudson or Catskill and someone was like, hey, what is someone from New York City like? You'd be like a very wealthy white person. But did we only get a small segment of the population of this city up here who it are going to these more expensive establishments. It, it just struck me. New York City is one of the most economically and racially diverse place on the planet is just the the segment of the population that we see in the Hudson Valley and the Catskills is just like a smidgen, a very specific subsection of uh, the city. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There's a whole population that said
0: that will enjoy some of those things, but just can't afford them. Yeah. Uh, That's sad there. Let's move into this other article about the environment. Environmental groups called Dreading of the Hudson a failure in the in your new report. So why do they consider General Electric's the grabbing of the
1: Hudson River a failure? Okay. Long story short, from 1947 to 1977, GE dumped something, yeah, like 1.2 million pounds of PCBs in the Hudson River from their plants north of Troy. There were, there was tons of litigation, but eventually the EPA or as a settlement, they agreed to dredge the upper Hudson. That is in between the Troy federal dam and their plants, uh, 20, 30 miles upstream from there. They did the dredging. The PCB rates fell, but then the theory behind the whole thing and why the, the EPA agreed to do this is that the levels of PCBs in the river. Would continue to fall after the dredging. And they set out this schedule about how if you do the dredging this way, they will continue to fall in this way. So it's a super fun site, the Hudson River. So every five years, the health of it is reviewed. And in the latest one, the EPA published its figures and it shows that PCBs are not declining at the rate that they had hoped. They're declining far, far slower. And there's essentially two measures they take. They take samples from the sediment in the bottom of the river, and then they test fish because that's a big part of it. You're you're not supposed to eat fish from the upper Hudson, and you're only supposed to eat like a fish a month from the lower Hudson because it's toxic. PCBs are carcinogens. Um, And the problem with that is that people still do fish, and and some of it is like subsistence fishing because there's like... A free river full of fish, and a lot of people rely on that. So that that's a big issue. But essentially, in the last measurement, the concentrations in fish and the concentrations at the river bottom actually went up, which is the opposite direction that it's supposed to be going, obviously. Uh, Riverkeeper cuts Hudson, there was a couple independent environmentalists and also the Sloop Clearwater people from there held this conference on these findings and said that they didn't have a prescription going forward but that the things were clearly not turning out as they should and there's been these efforts on the state's part The epa is federal the dc the our version of the epa has been pushing to dredge the lower hudson but that's all polluted too because it flows downstream there's various litigations between the EPA and the DEC. Currently, uh, G is in no way required to dredge the Lower Hudson, but this kind of thing will probably bring that back into the limelight. Like, A, should the Lower Hudson potentially be dredged, and B, should there be some further environmental mitigation north of Troy? So I was taken back
0: about that, that consumption for fish, because I didn't really know that there was a limit of how many fish you can eat, and even oh, yeah. that's probably... And that's troubling that to know that, hey, you can have just one, but more than two is dangerous. I think one would be dangerous in my, my personal opinion, but if someone uh, says just have one because more yeah. than that
1: is poisonous, I'd be like, I don't want any.
0: It just reminds me, I'm originally from, from the cities and, and I remember in the Bronx, there was a, a bridge that went over the, the Bronx river by Whitestone interchange by it before you hit to the, that the Whitestone bridge and the other bridge, I forgot the Throxnick bridge. There was a small little creek there and I was just amazed when I used to drive to work. Folks were fishing there. And if you look down the river, it was just, it's tugboats going in and out and it's just brown water. But people fish there. I don't, I'm not saying they consume they the fish there, but they just like fishing. It's, Do you have you heard from any sort of people who are enjoying the fish there, how this is hurting their sort of lifestyle or anything like that?
1: Has that come up? It's funny. So I'm I'm in the Hudson Valley. I'm along the lower Hudson. And yeah, people fish it. People, there's a couple There's like fish that spawn in the Hudson River and then there's fish that live in the Hudson River. Traditionally, people have always caught and ate fish that spawn in the Hudson River because they're ocean fish and they're they're not as dirty and that kind of thing. But in Stockport, where I was living in Columbia County, it abuts the Hudson River and they had people, there's this little pocket park and people had grills attached to the trees and they would just grill up the fish. Some people don't know that they're not supposed to eat fish from the Hudson. Part of this is at the spot I was describing, there's often people from the Bengali community there and there's like a posting in English, but I'm not sure if that there should be postings in Spanish and Bengali and that kind of thing because it's a health issue. It's a health issue. Some people don't know. B, some people are like, eh, whatever, and they're not very concerned. But yeah, people still eat the fish, and it's a free meal and it's delicious. It's unfortunately slightly poisonous. You're listening to the
0: Reporter's Roundtable on the local edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to the local edition,
1: winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association, Radio Catskill. Listen local.
2: Support comes from The Creek House Grill. Fresh food, drinks, and cocktails on the Delaware River in Calicoon, New York. Menu and hours at thecreekhousegrill.com. From the Forest Playhouse. Live entertainment in the Sullivan Catskills since 1947. With musicals, plays, cabaret, arts education, concerts, special events, and more. Tickets at fbplayhouse.org. Happy
0: Thanksgiving. Thank you for listening to Radio Catskill. We hope you're having a safe and happy holiday. Don't forget, Saturday is our annual music sale, and this year it's bigger than ever. We've got more room, more records, and a ton of audio equipment. $5 admission, cash, or Venmo accepted. See you Saturday at Radio Catskill Music Sale, 10 to 3 at the Liberty Mall in Liberty. welcome back to the local edition and we head right back into the latest edition of the reporter's roundtable on radio Catskill here is Ruby Rayner from the river reporter this past month we've all been focusing on the election this is this really big election here locally one of the big stories is that the county legislature has have new leadership and some of the absentee ballots have been counted already. So we can tell us about any updates on these current election.
2: Yeah, so the updates have already come in, but the legislature will stand to switch from uh, Republican-dominated to Democrat. So it should be interesting to see how ongoing issues that the town, different towns in the county have been dealing with, are going to play out with new members of the legislature. Specifically, just this past week, the adult care center, the like Sunset Care Center, that has been a very contentious issue in the legislature since it was moved towards privatization, has come back to the forefront. There was a hearing that was scheduled in which a certificate of fee, so basically the Department of Health, has to look at the transfer of care. So the Sullivan County Adult care center was run by the county and then they decided that they were going to move towards having infinite care, a consulting group, um, oversee the care and no longer be, uh, the administers or overseers of the adult care center. And they were going to move that towards private ownership. And in order for that approval process to actually go through, the Department of Health looks over these, this proposal and decides whether they are going to Approve it or not. And a subcommittee meets in which they recommend to that full board of whether they think it should go forward. So whether they think it's a good idea, a bad idea, or they don't give a recommendation. And what actually happened was the subcommittee decided not to give a recommendation. So based on public comment, which happens to the subcommittee, um, I think they took that into consideration and there was definitely some people who spoke about not thinking that the best option for the adult care center was for Infinite Care to be the, to be in charge of it, and so there's no longer a decision that will be made right now about whether this movement um, of the county to Infinite Care will happen. So it's still to be seen, and the new legislature when they enter will take that role on of deciding what the fate of the care center will be.
0: Absolutely. And this is such an ongoing, long-going thing. I just remember when this first came up many years ago, I think it was right after the pandemic or when the pandemic started, when this transfer over to Infinite Care. And now, it, it, we said before, it's going to be interesting now with the new legislature there, because many of those folks who ran were affected by the Adult Care Center. Care center. Let's say cat Scott for uh, District 5, I believe she's in. To her main concern was the Adult Care Center, and, and they were part of the, the Truth Squad, and they used to show up to the legislature meetings and it's just to gather support, say, "So we said the county should take back the of the adult care center." So it'll be interesting as going forward and uh, this new legislature. We interviewed a lot of the candidates, and that was everyone uh, was every interview we did it was mentioned the adult care center and what was happening there. I uh, think went down to a one star rating in some report with the healthcare okay. there. So it'll be definitely interesting to see what happens there. And and for some reason, I was under the impression that Infinite Care already had control of the adult care center as far as like the management of it.
2: So yeah, it's super confusing. And I think that's one of the ways where people find it hard to understand who is in charge of this, who's accountable for the quality of care that's being administered. But currently, Incident Care is operating the care center, but it's just that the certificate hasn't been finalized. And once, and if it is, Sullivan County will still own the building. They'll just, they won't be responsible or liable for Administering care in the facility that will be completely infinite care, but they would still lease the building to infinite care. And I, this, I'm going to continue doing some reporting on this, but infinite care has been looking into it and they actually have a bunch of different facilities. And this is like a common, common thing that has happened where uh, private companies um, have been buying uh, adult care centers and nursing homes. So. It's people a worry because there's no one to make necessarily they can go to for accountability, so when it's run by the county, you can say to your local representative, I'm not happy with the care that my family member is receiving, and I'm going to exercise my vote in this election to show that there's some someone to answer to that uh whereas when it is in the when it the, a concern that people have of when it's transferred to private ownership is that there is no uh, single person or people, it's harder to determine who's responsible for answering to potential issues that may arise. Uh,
0: one thing I always noticed that Infinite Care hasn't come to any of the legislature meetings to respond to what happened. I remember them coming to in the very beginning to do a presentation about what kind of care they give and what kind of the other facilities they have. But after that, I have not seen them in my memory of coming to a meeting to respond to the things that are happening. I find that surprising. You have a story here about a voter who's oh got had the trouble when she went to went to vote ran to some troubles here, and I know here in Suffolk County they made some effort as how to streamline that effort with electronics and electronic uh, sign-up books. So, what what can you tell us about this story?
2: Yeah, I think stories like this where it's like an individual experience and it could seem innocuous or just like a one-off, but it's gives us a view into how people actually are their experience with voting and also how our bureaucracy works. Helen DeMarinville went to vote in the town of Delaware on election day and she wasn't able to. So she gets to the polls and the poll workers say they can't find her uh, name in the voter rolls and they're not sure that she'll be able to vote. And she told the river reporter that she was pretty sure that she registered to vote when she changed her address on her license. And she actually had a jury summons with her and she was like, what's better than a jury summons to show that I should be able to vote here? So she shows the poll workers the jury summons and they're like, sorry, we can we can't find you. You're not going to be able to vote. And so she says, OK, can I vote through affidavit? And an affidavit is a vote that allows people with any type of voter issue like this that might come up to vote and then for poll workers to then look at that affidavit vote and decide whether it can or can't be counted later on. And they tell her she can't vote through affidavit. She has to go to Monticello to vote through, through affidavit. And she's like, her husband votes fine. And then they leave. So they go shopping, they do some groceries, and then they come back a few hours later. And she's, let me just ask them again, because she wanted to vote for this election day. She comes back and she says to them, are you sure I can't vote by affidavit here? She um, tears for her mother and she's, I don't have time to got- go to Monticello. She has like a friend who looks after her mom who's going to leave outside, but she can't stay later. So there's no time for her to go do that. Um, and they basically then, this is what she said to the river reporter. They conceded that they checked and they were supposed to give her an affidavit. So then they try to print it for her, but the printer isn't working. And then they try to print it a couple of times and she's okay, that's so all right. She said that they were very nice and kind. And She said, "I that's all right, I have to go. And the next day she calls the County Board of Elections and she explains to them what happened and they tell her that it's too late for her to vote in this one. And she just was very taken aback and surprised that she experienced an um, issue and it turned her towards thinking about other people who potentially have issues voting and it made her think about people who are in, uh, adult care centers and nursing homes and whether they're able to vote on election day and how easy it could be for them. So it led her on this whole, um, search and she found this directive that was actually implemented in COVID and it says nursing homes should have a plan to ensure residents can exercise their right to vote, whether in person by mail absentee or an other authorized process. So it's whether or not this is I'm quoting them, whether or not external assistance is available to come into the facility. Nursing homes are required to support a resident in the exercise of their right to vote, such as assisting with absentee or mail-in voting or transporting residents to polling locations or ballot drop boxes in a safe manner. Garnet Health, which um, offers mental health ser- services, we ask them whether they have any type of plan in place to allow voting of this nature. And they wrote in an email to the River Reporter back that please note that while we offer mental health services, we are not a mental health facility and that people, it is it's the Board of Elections responsibility to meet the need of the voter and not the facility. So quote, Garnet Health's obligation is to permit the Board of Elections representative to visit with the patient to conduct official casting of the ballot, but that they have no plan in place. And the Board of Elections, also when they were relayed the story of Helen, said that, and I'll read what they said, because in essence, they said she should have been able to vote. But they said Sullivan County election inspectors are trained to provide affidavit ballots to voters and affidavit ballots are available at all poll sites, including early voting. Out of concern and respect for voters' privacy, they don't comment on situations specific to individual voters. So it was an interesting investigation of the ability to vote and different things that could potentially hinder on that. Whether that be in a nursing home, adult care center, or just somebody who potentially wasn't found in the voter roll that day.
0: I think it's very important because I said exactly what she thought was how many other people are being affected by this. Who who else is being left out? And we we're, we're, we're a, this was an off year. Uh, in elections and if you sure i'm sure you saw the the voter turnout wasn't a lot But say in fallsburg alone last year last off year voting election was in 2500 people voted and this year i not counting the absolute balance seems less than 2000 people voted in the town of fallsburg mm-hmm. so every vote really counts and some votes so last time was decided by just a couple of 10 20 votes so it's curious to see how many other people are falling through the cracks during the during this past election that's a great story there. Thank you so much for joining me for the latest edition of The Reporter's Roundtable. Thank you to my two guests, Ruby Rayner from The River Reporter and Roger Hengen-Gilson from The Times Union. Till next time, thank you and take care and stay safe. Happy
1: holidays. Thanks.
0: And that does it for this edition of The Reporter's Roundtable and this edition of The Local Edition. If you want more of The Reporter's Roundtable, you can actually check out our podcast, WJFF, The Reporter's Roundtable podcast. We actually have about maybe 15, 20 more minutes of Roger stories, of Ruby's stories. You can even check out our YouTube channel. And you actually can see me, Roger, and Ruby all talking to each other. Coming up for you this Saturday is the annual music sale. And I believe there's so much more stuff this year for sale than previous years. It just seems like things are being donated or coming in. I just went out recently to see all the instruments that we have for sale, the keyboards, the electronic drums. There was a nice little acoustic bass that was playing this little on, you know, was testing it, not playing it, I was testing it. You know, make sure the strings are working and all that. So if you want to miss, if you want to come to the music sale, it's happening Saturday at the new location, At the Liberty Mall at 15 Sullivan Avenue in Liberty, New York. Right next to the Sullivan County Visitors Association Visitor Center and across the road from the Liberty Diner. Like I said, we're going to have instruments, vinyl, CDs, cassettes, musical instruments, plus a ton of audio components, turntables, stereos, reel-to-reel, speakers, and antique radios. Also, affordable vinyls, high-value vinyls for collectors, a silent auction, and refreshments, and so much more. Cash or Vimeo is accepted. The mission is only $5. This is happening at the Liberty Mall, 15 Sullivan Avenue, this Saturday. Everyone enjoy your evening, your Thanksgiving. Have a good night, Lucy. You're listening to WJFF Radio Catskill, your NPR station for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Have a good night. Stay safe.
2: Why, hello, it's Cassie from the Rare Pair Radio Show. Uh, The Saturday after Thanksgiving from 10 to 3 p.m. is Radio Catskill's annual music sale. Saturday, November 25th, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. It's actually in a new location, the Liberty Mall in Liberty, New York. There'll be an assortment of vinyls, CDs, all kinds of stuff. Components, turntables, stereos, cash in Venmo is accepted. Admission $5. And the proceeds go to Radio Catskill. So hope to see you there.
0: WJFF Jeffersonville W233AH Monticello You're listening to Radio Catskill